Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by generous support from the American Horticultural Society. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Hannah Gardner is a gardener, a writer and mother. She is a garden designer and plantswoman with a passion for traveling the world to learn about and meet plants and their communities in their own places. From Estonia to the Canary Islands, northern Israel to the wildflower meadows of her own home in Wiltshire, England. Her longtime column in Gardens Illustrated, entitled The Outsider, is a trove of adventurous botanical armchair plant and garden travel for readers. The botanical lessons she learns globally inform her organic horticultural work right at home and give inspiration to all of us for better botanical holiday making and returning home ourselves. She is a firm believer in imaginative possibilities in our gardens, born of broadening our horizons through travel. Welcome, Hannah. Well, Jennifer, it's so fantastic to be here and thank you for asking me. It just feels like a wonderful treat to talk about plants. It is. It's a luxury and a treat to speak about plants uh, with people who care about them. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, I'm going to start off with the question that I'm really quite fond of right now, which is if you as a, a human engaged with plants had a mission statement for your work with and relationship to plants in this moment in time and in your life, what would that mission statement be, Hannah? I think at the moment, maybe particularly after the really tricky year that we've all just had, I was heading in this direction anyway. But I think we have just realised how completely crucial our relationship with plants is and how healing this is and how having the opportunity to make the connections is so important to all of us. And you can frame that in lots of ways, and I do lots of different jobs within horticulture, but I think it's really just encouraging and allowing people to make that connection with nature. And maybe I can help by my writing or the odd lecture or by having a garden that's open to the public sometimes just to help people see what is around us and engage with it. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back a little bit and tell listeners where you were born and raised and who were the people and and places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom this work would be your calling and passion as well. Well, I was born in the 70s in the West Country in England, in the countryside, and my parents had done that 70s thing and bought a small holding My dad had a proper job, but he decided he wanted to be a farmer. So it was kind of idyllic, but we all had to work really hard. At that point, it was my brother and I, and it was a real work ethic. And I just had this idyllic childhood of I had a horse. We had so much freedom back then to roam. And I think the garden wasn't such a thing. I mean, we had a veg garden. We had pretty ordinary garden to be honest and it wasn't very fancy but it was a kind of country house that had a bit of space but it was being left to my own devices going out on my horse all day going to the woods hiding in the fields 
working in the fields. That just, that was my upbringing. And it didn't occur yeah. to be a career, but that was my beginning, I think, of just being outside and working with plants. And it's funny because that um, the hand in hand of the idyllic rural childhood with incredibly hard work, dawn to dusk work, like they go together. You, you don't get an idyllic childhood in, in a country setting that involves growing any of your own food to, to you know, any extent uh, that doesn't involve a lot of hard work. It is a it's like parenting. It's 24-7, 365 days to make those things actually happen. But I think the thing, actually, that I really learned from doing the work when I was a child, which was so different to what we would expect children to do now in a way, it was just necessary, but it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of teamwork, actually, of this incredibly hard work. But hey, we've done it. Um, so I've never shied from hard work. I quite enjoy it. You know, and I'm quite motivated and I like a lot of balls in the air. And I think I've always been like that. Yeah. So you grew up there. You worked really hard. You you learned how to work and you had the great satisfaction of that learning and that empowering accomplishment that, that comes with those things as well. And, you know, for some people... That ends up with, I am never going back to the country again. My children are never going to have to be, you know, indentured to the family plot and never again. But for you, it's it's moved into this life calling and, and passion. So where do you go from the West Country? Uh, and how do you move out into the beginnings of your adult iteration? Well, I think two things happened after the idyllic childhood. One was that I had a very serious accident and I was ill for quite a long, a horse riding accident. So my whole life got completely turned upside down. And I had, I missed a lot of school. It uh, Now it affects my hearing. There were lots of things that it really affected me and I wasn't that well for quite a while. And then my parents got divorced. Wow. How old were you when the accident happened? The accident was when I was 13 and it was a serious sort of brain injury, but it's all fine. And it took a while to get there. And then my parents' divorce was a big thing because we sold the farm, we moved. It was all change. And my reaction to that was to just travel and be independent. And then... I really traveled and that was my way of dealing with it, I guess. I was off. So that's where the travel started young and I did it independently. And it's always been a theme, you know, since then. Yeah. So you are how old when the divorce happens and you begin your travels? Uh, I guess I was about... 1920 and then it was university but then I would never go home in the holidays because you know so then you'd think yeah. of a trip and then you do something and the plant travels just happened through different friends because I was doing an arts degree but my friends you know it's great isn't it at uni you have all sorts of friends and um, one of them was doing uh, tropical environmental science so we traveled and just picking up these different threads because, you know, I was quite young. Um, I'm just sometimes off by myself, but 
always I was drawn to the nature and then the plants just come into it whilst you're traveling and the culture and how the plants are being used. Yeah. So what is the first destination point that 18, 19, you know, get away from everyday life? Uh, Hannah, what, what's your first travel destination at that point? The first one was probably to India, which felt like a big trip. And we did it on yeah. a shoestring. Shoe and uh, I went with a really close friend. We went for quite a while, like maybe six weeks or something. And um, we did loads of traveling. We did loads of looking at forests and just this wham bam, new environment, new experience. And culturally, it's so rich and different that I was just hooked. And so from there, uh, because I think, I don't know, my experience has been as well that once you learn you can travel and you can travel on a shoestring, um, it opens up so many possibilities. But you, and as you say, you learn so much so differently when you travel outside of, first of all, your everyday environment, but also to a different culture. It is. It is phenomenal how much more open and observant we are in those in those experiences. And can you remember the first travel in which the plants were a really compelling factor? And, and where was that and what were those plants, Hannah? Well, I think the – so skipping forward, I ended yep. up doing a degree at Q mm-hmm. and – I felt like a real outsider because I had an arts degree before, a master's, and then I changed course and I started at Q and we had amazing field trips with people who knew what they were talking about. So we went to Southern Spain with loads of botanists from Reading University. And then I was like, this is the business. You know, these guys (laughs) have their names. They have this encyclopedic knowledge this passion and I think then I really understood a bit more how to do it you know it's like it was research before you went it was analysis it was really being geeky about it which I quite like to be a bit of a geek sometimes Uh, so it was a cue that we did the field trips and then after that you know that was a three-year I won some scholarships and had some opportunities so it just carried on yeah and so at what point are you trying to manage travel with your own family, with working as a head gardener and and fitting, like working professionally, whether you're a head gardener or not, but working professionally as a gardener? Because those are a lot of things to try and fit into an annual schedule, as we all know. Um I think it got more complicated because I did the traveling and I did my degree and stuff. Then I had a job as a head gardener. I then had a child by myself with no one else helping with the care at all. You know, he was not on the scene. So that was a decision I made. It wasn't a sort of accidental occurrence. It was, you know, I really wanted a child. Um, But that definitely made it a whole nother ball game. And I think I felt like I really wanted this baby, but I didn't want... Well, I needed to work and have a career and earn some money. And she just came with me. And I somehow, it was quite tricky for a while, to be honest, but I kept the ball rolling and we went with it. Well, and it is interesting to me how um, 
how many women in horticulture I have interviewed who have made similar choices, not necessarily having their babies on their own or um, always taking them with them, but like figuring out this kind of patchwork, you know, uh, of how to have all of these different important facets interface as smoothly as possible. And it's always tricky. And um, so you become a head gardener how soon after graduating from Q and where is that gardener position? Uh, so I did travel a bit after Q and live abroad, but we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, when I got back from those travels, I had a year at Sissinghurst, which was invaluable. And then I went to Garsington Manor, which is a really old, historic, wonderful old house from the kind of Bloomsbury group just outside Oxford. And uh, that was my hair gardening position. They had about four staff and they were really shocked because I was female, I was young. I wasn't from Oxfordshire and oh no, not brackets, <laughs> not that far away. Um, but that was my first position and it was a real challenge actually because there was so much, so much opportunity but there was so much to do. But, and I so stayed there eight years. And how old were you at this point? Oh my gosh, I'm not so good on the ages. I think I was early... 30s. Okay. Or, or you can give me like yeah. a year frame too, not necessarily your age. But, um, and so tell us about the travels after Q before your first head gardener position. So when I was at Q, I went to Japan for the first time because uh, you there are these opportunities and scholarships and you compete and if you get them, you're off, which is great. And I really fell in love with it. It really got under my skin. And I thought, yeah, I want to go back, but I had no idea how to do it. And then I was reading the paper. Newspapers have a big part of my life. The kind of just incidental thing of a lot of opportunities I've taken, I've seen in the newspaper, Kew Gardens being one of them. And the Dioa Scholarship was my second newspaper opportunity. And I just saw the advert in the FT. I have no idea why I picked up the Financial Times, okay? And I read it and I thought that looks amazing. And that scholarship allowed me to travel to Japan and work in horticulture for a year. And that was really life-changing. Actually, it was an amazing opportunity. When you say it was life-changing, I would like you to explain and sort of gloss that a little (laughs) bit, um, as well as tell us where were you in Japan and who were you working under or studying with? So the idea of the scholarship was you had to, it was quite intimidating to do it. It was uh, a lot of interview processes in London and you had to come up with a really good itinerary of what you were going to do. And I had read, because I'd already been to Japan, I was interested and I knew a bit about the plants and I'd done some botanizing, but I decided it would be really interesting to go and work for a monk called Shimyo Masune who is now actually more of a household name because he's since written an amazing book about Zen and it's all, uh, but at that time it was quite wrapped up and Dan Pearson had worked with him and I heard about this man and wrote to him and amazingly he said yes, I think because I was a Dharma scholar and I went back to University of Hokkaido and did some amazing field trips and work with them. That was a connection through Q because I'd already done a bit of work with them and you had to study the language. And I also um, made a connection in Kyoto and I went and worked with some landscape gardeners in a landscaping business. 
and I lived in their staff house and that was a really old family business and they were wonderful people and it was incredible and going around the temple gardens in Kyoto doing the maintenance it was I learned so much and it was just a I, real I privilege yeah did you were you intimidated did you feel ready were you excited to put into sort of use all of this year you had just come out of I think to be honest the Japanese experience was slightly compartmentalized into something it's so particular in many ways to the place and I'd had the most incredible year that gave me loads of personal confidence just because I've been living abroad and dealing with such big cultural changes and sort of challenged myself you know it wasn't so easy going to live in a Zen monastery which never had a European visitor before and so I just came back and I was like okay now my back to the career let's have a job and a team and I wasn't so intimidated but I really learnt I put a lot of work in the evenings you know I had to do a lot of studying and yeah learn that way you know I suppose you just have to put the effort in right and so define what being a head gardener at that time meant to you and what it looked like on the ground so like when you say you had to study describe for people what this role entails and what it yeah what it took for you I think in the UK it can often a head gardener would be something that um, you're a head gardener in an organization's garden so it's the National Trust or it's English Heritage which has a completely different structure but in private gardens I think actually it can mean anything you might have a team of one or you might have no team but you're the head gardener or you might have quite a big team or it might vary and you know but I think really you're responsible for working with the owner and forging that relationship and trying to make that as harmonious productive creative and sort of focused as possible but you're also managing your team so you have to do quite a lot of people management but also steer the garden and do the creative side which I really love the sort of there's so much to it you know being a head gardener can be incredible this is Cultivating Place. The aptly named Hannah Gardner is a horticulturalist and gardener, keen on adventurous botanical travel to meet plants in their places. We'll be right back after a break with more from Hannah. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by generous support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to celebrate its 100th anniversary, the American Horticultural Society has been a trusted source of high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. Today, the Society's mission blends education, social responsibility, and environmental stewardship with the art and practice of horticulture. Members of the American Horticultural Society receive the award-winning flagship magazine, The American Gardener. 
free admission and other discounts to more than 345 public gardens with the Reciprocal Admissions Program, plus discounts on books, seeds, programs, and more. And you can bet I took advantage of this Reciprocal Admissions Program while I was traveling these last three weeks. I will continue to do so as I travel more this summer and meet more of you. Listeners of Cultivating Place can receive a $10 discount on the annual individual membership of $35 by visiting www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. For your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. Hey, it's Jennifer. So last week we talked about adventurous gardening adventurous landscape design of integrity, and adventurous garden design mindset. This week, we're deep into plant and garden adventures, literally, which I think is particularly appropriate in this summer of 2021 when people can and are traveling once again. And those of us garden folk who may be traveling rarely miss a chance to meet new plants and be inspired by gardens on our own adventures. Hannah Gardner's philosophy is predicated on the idea that the more she meets plants in their places, the more she knows about them in her own garden, and the more, in fact, she knows about the plants she loves native to her own place. I believe this to be true as well this honing of our sense of place and renewing our sense of sight and wonder by knowing and immersing ourselves in other places, whether they are three miles away or 3,000 miles away. We're back now to our conversation with gardener and writer Hannah Gardner, head gardener, world traveler, and writer. Her longtime column, The Outsider, for Gardens Illustrated, shared more on her love of botanizing globally, not only to learn more about the plants she loves, but to also learn more about how to love the plants of her own place even better. As we come back, Hannah shares the scope of work in being a head gardener. Well, that garden was a historic garden that wasn't open to the public, but every year they had a big opera festival. So every year for that, I don't know, six weeks period, they'd have hundreds and hundreds of people into the garden and they put a temporary structure next to the house and have a stage. And it was really wonderful artistic kind of hub. But the garden had very old trees. It was uh, an old kind of ramshackle terrace and it had a lot of overgrown areas that I was able to develop. So it had a dell with a little kind of stream trickling down from the village horse pond. It had a big lake with an island, a little island on it and a bridge. And then we had meadows, which to an extent we could develop. But it had terraces and a very ornamental garden. The whole place was about five acres. And we had a veg garden that was productive and lots of trained roses. It had a lot. And I had a team of 
two really old guys and later on a younger guy who came who was some muscle which was really useful actually <laughs> this sleep was a real killer muscle yeah, is it? always useful <laughs> <laughs> so were the were the owners at the time were they gardeners themselves did they have a lot of plant knowledge or input that uh that you were working with or did they rely on you to come up with I'd like to do this in the dell or this in the meadow or um it was really free actually they were both highly intelligent really creative they were really into the opera they kind of lived for the opera and they ran the opera company so I think they were overjoyed that someone had come with some new ideas and some energy because they'd kept the same really lovely old loyal garden for years and years but nothing had he wasn't really a plantsman and it was a bit of color and stuff but very so so and I think Rosalind was just overjoyed that she kind of left me to it she gave me lots of praise we talk about the veg garden and what they might require for the house and I knew that some things couldn't be changed because the whole place was listed and it had wonderful, like twisted old uh, fastigate yew trees. And the layout, you wouldn't really mess with too much, but then it was perfect because you had a, the bones of the garden were there, but the actual planting was completely rubbish. So <laughs> there was loads of room for experimentation and improvement. And it was, that was great when I was my first head gardening job. There's a lot of freedom. And so you graduate from this next portion of your educational horticultural life as your first head gardener, and you're you're there for eight years. Where do you go from there? Um, well, by this time I had a young child in tow, and I it was just time for a move. There was some illness in the family, not my family, but where we were working, and it was a change of circumstance. And my own mother was ill, and I thought, actually, I'm going to move a little nearer where my mother was living and I looked for an opportunity quite quietly just mentioning it to a few people because I didn't have to rush to leave but it was on my radar and you know um and it, a job someone mentioned a job to me and it was an Arnie Maynard garden he's a designer I'm sure you've heard of in the UK and they said that the owner was very interested in the project as well so like a really engaged owner which is great and I came down and looked around and thought this garden had a lot of opportunity. And it just seemed the right time to move. And I had friends near Bath, so I went to live near my friends. And I actually commute a long way to my work. That's the way it worked out. Yeah. And so you you live near Bath and you took this job. Is this the, the, your current role as well? Yeah. So you've been there for quite a while. Yeah, I've been here about eight years as well. And is there a name to this garden? Uh, this garden is called Blackland House. And we have a flower business, which is called Bainton Flowers, which is organic cut flowers. We have a big flower farm up in the field. Um, so we run the flower. It's an interesting job. There's so much scope and it's grown and grown. I guess I think the reason I stay in jobs for quite a long time is because I like to take the job that has a challenge. So you have a real distance to go with it. And if the owners have the means and they're engaged, it always keeps it interesting. And you learn so much as you go along yourself then because you're just extending and extending and trying new things. And this job's like that. We're so busy now, it's, you know, new projects. Yeah, 
And so right from the outset, did you know there was going to be an organic flower farming aspect to this job? Uh, oh, that's, Or did that develop? It sort of developed. It developed in scale quite quickly, actually. Polly was really into flowers and she had the beginnings. She used to cut flowers from the garden, at the walled garden, but they'd put a lot of effort into developing the house and doing it up and getting this master plan from Arnie. And then we just had grand ideas. I suppose we hit the ground running and it was like, well, we need more space. And why don't we do the field? And, you know, then a few years later, it was the polytunnel. And then the field was extended and we just went with it. And she still does a lot of uh, flower work. And so you are in charge of how many people and you oversee the flower part as well as the the, the garden beyond that? Yeah, so the way we divide it, uh, interesting actually, we divide it quite a lot by the sex of the gardeners, which is just coincidental, but it's just the way it works out. So there's two estate guys, because we also have quite a lot of, it's quite a lot of farmland. So they do, uh, they do do things like the lawns, but I oversee what they do because we're soil association certified. So everything, you know, I have to oversee all the products we use and the inputs, Uh, but the men do more of that. And then I have a team I've just taken on, actually, which is really nice during COVID to take staff on. We've taken on a RAG student and we've taken on a young girl who's 20, who is just finding her way. And they're both excellent. So now we have a team of four and they work part time. Yeah. And you have been able to stay at work through this entire uh, COVID period. Yeah, it was it's been such a relief, Jennifer. I can't tell you because when it all happened in the spring and we're all having this dystopian weirdness, we stopped work for about a day just to take stock because you just need, I came in actually, but I just told everyone else not to come in. And then you have to think about what on earth you're going to do. And then in the first initial stage, we all work separate days. So, but it was really in the growing season. So it was a bit of a nightmare because we, Polly and I did have to decide what we were going to do about the cut flowers and we were going to grow. So last year, we really focused a lot on food. We did grow flowers as well, but, you know, because there was less staff in here, I mean, I was in as much, but some of the uh, staff wanted to do less days and I had a few childcare issues going on with no school over the past year. Right. Uh, she schooled here. That was interesting in my other potting shed. And we carried on and it was an absolute godsend to just be able to come to work and do something productive and grow and Polly sold the flowers. And we had an okay year considering what everyone's you know been through in the wider picture. Right. And your daughter is now... She's 13, yeah. Okay. And so now we're going to digress a little bit and get back to the travel. You, I think, have traveled fairly consistently over this last eight, ten years and have continued to go meet plants and study plants and learn from plants where they happen to be. Describe for, for, for listeners that arc in your life and, and where it then kind of came together in the outsider column for Gardens Illustrated, because I see that 
uh, as being this beautiful integration of these two parts of your life uh, for a wonderful result that in, enriches, I think, gardeners and plants people everywhere. Well, I think the traveling carried on and then I didn't write about them to start with. I traveled. I mean, with the column, I did that column for about two and a half years and it was quite tricky to fit it all in, for sure, because I also have a full-time job, but some of them were retrospective. You know, I'd taken those trips before and I've always been a big note keeper. The other thing about the column was that um, the editor wanted it to be seasonal. So you have to sort of, which is kind of makes sense with the magazine. So you have to write it three months ahead and then do the traveling. So it was fantastic, but it was really quite a juggle. And I've traveled more in those two and a half years. I mean, I loved it. If I could do it, I'd be off, you know, <laughs> I'd be off. Right. But, right. <laughs> you're supposed to be off right now, I think. Yeah. But instead, you're talking to me. I know, I was just being creeped, looking at Tulipa's Pentica. Um, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, the column came about and Lisa, she said, I'd, I like your writing, um, which was lovely because it gave me confidence. And I'd done different things that Gardens Illustrated or different magazines had asked me to do. And she said, I think travel would be great. And between us, we came up with this slotting in the element of the plant you can grow at home, which I really like that element because I really wanted to demystify the wild plants. And I think that really brought people in because you sort of think, ah, okay, she's just gone off and looked at this. And it's quite good because they can see it's really doable because I'm not doing it on a huge budget and I'm doing it by myself, sometimes quite often with a young child and getting that higher car and going off. And I think just say, relating it to what's going on in the garden, it's a bit of plant history. Sometimes it's a bit of ethnobotany and you can just thread in the uses of the plants and what you've seen. So it's quite cultural. And that was my favorite way to write them actually. But I think COVID came and also, I mean, it was wonderful doing a column but I think you take a break. This is Cultivating Place. Hannah Gardner is a horticulturalist and gardener. Her botanical travel adventures to meet plants in their places informs her own understanding of the plants in her home place. We'll be right back after a break with more from Hannah. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud and thinking more about this idea of garden and traveling. I know there is an impact to traveling, and I know we can all try to diminish our impact the best we can. I also know that botanizing while traveling is one of life's great pleasures. As this week's episode airs, I am just back to my own home place from travels to Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Maine, and New Mexico. I have seen new-to-me gardens, some of them quite old, and met many new-to-me gardeners, which is always not just a treat, but an expansion for me. 
At the Nantucket Garden Festival, I had the pleasure of sitting at some length on the pews of the old Quaker Meeting House with a doctor who is a new gardener and intensely considering how to integrate more hands-on plant medicine into her work with patients. Sitting with us was the Ecological Environmental Director of the local land bank, considering how to really bring greater conversation and interaction between the very, very different populations of this small, beautiful island, those who visit the island and those who work the land, making the visitors' conveniences possible. In Maine, hosted by the Beatrix Ferrand Society, I spoke in the old barn at Garland Farm, the last home and garden of Mrs. Ferrand, with her perfect dooryard garden, and I got to meet so many wonderful gardeners and garden appreciators. There were both young and elders in the audience who stayed after to again chat with me more about how their exact work in the garden and with the land might be amplified to have even greater effectiveness in addressing the many challenges of our time. I met up with chatted and toured with great gardeners, Peggy Cornett of Monticello, Stephen Orr of Better Homes and Gardens, Kristen Giel of Cultivated by Kristen, Cassie Banning, Aaron Dilworth, Mary Roper of the Land and Garden Preserve on Mount Desert Island, and Caleb Davis, a landscape designer there. As a surprise, Severine von Tarschner Fleming of the Greenhorns and the New Farmer's Almanac, a new society builder and young farmer advocate, showed up at my talk in Maine, and having interviewed her for the earth in her hands, it was such a joy to be able to hug her, talk with her in person, and introduce her to the audience so she could inspire them as well. So what's the point of this long-winded travelogue? Well, I return home, ever more deeply believing that the more we as gardeners connect and cross-pollinate and deepen one another, the greater the potential for positive growth we are in this world. From the 20-something working gardeners to the 80-something garden lifers and vice versa, still listening and eagerly learning and loving this garden life. I loved hiking around these places, garden visiting and botanizing on roadsides and grand estates to meet plant friends. But I'm going to tell you, it's the ecosystem of gardeners that moves me the most, figuratively and literally. It's this ecosystem that grows me. It's this ecosystem of people meeting plants that has such great potential. Just like Hannah Gardner in our conversation today, I have returned home full and renewed by my botanical adventures. So thank you, ecosystem of gardeners out there growing the world better. It is always good to meet you again and again, every one of you different, every one of us powerful. We're back now to our conversation with gardener and writer Hannah Gardner.
She is a head gardener, a garden designer, a world traveler, and a travel tour leader and writer. Her longtime column, The Outsider for Gardens Illustrated, shared much more on her love of botanizing globally. As we come back, Hannah shares more about her Gardens Illustrated column and her botanical adventures. One of the last most memorable trips I made there was to Israel. That was a really right. incredible, and I wrote two columns about that because it was there was so much to write about, and that was really, really interesting. But the column came to an end just as we were kicking in, just before COVID, actually. It was kind of yeah. on the tail of it. And um, we'll, we'll see what, what the next thing is. I mean, I'm keen to keep writing. It just depends what about this is a little bit off topic maybe, but is there any thought of putting those columns together with the beautiful illustrations by Alice, how do you say her last name? Petulo, Petulo yeah. Petulo, into any kind of, of a book or? Um... Well, Alice and I decided to meet because it's really, you know, you're working with this person, you have quite an intimate, wonderful relationship with them. And, you know, she sent me a sketch and, it was a really lovely, fruitful relationship that we had slightly off-piste from the magazine we wrote for because it, it kind of became... And so I met her in London and we discussed it because she does a lot of books. And I think I have a few other book ideas, so I haven't pursued it. It's still in the dormancy stage. Okay. Yes, I like the way you put that. So, <laughs> and one of the things that I personally really loved about reading The Outsider regularly, and I'm one of those American um, subscribers to the magazine, and so it sometimes comes, you know, a month late, it sometimes comes two months late, like the, the actual arrival of Gardens Illustrated to my mailbox is very unpredictable, <laughs> but... Um, for you know, I was working on my first book, The Earth in Her Hands, in 2018. And there was some real joy of reading your column and feeling like it was a beautiful evolution from kind of colonizing mindset of the Victorian plant hunters and this acquisitive mindset of let's get all the plants we can and send them home and and rename them and you know and and I was so deep in that kind of thinking and and to read how you were going to meet them where they lived take photographs of them learn about their growing ways and then share that information with people at home, not because you'd collected masses of them and were going to propagate, you know, a whole new industry, but just to teach people about these these beings that we love and then sort of educate as well about plants that were already in our gardens. Like I think of Fritillaria persica or uh, the, you know, peony officinalis and the different irises. And those were already in our gardens because of the previous version of plant hunting. And, and people don't know very much about them. They don't know where they come from. They don't know how they live and what they, you know, or in most cases we don't because we get them at the nursery, we bring them home, we love them. And we haven't had access to the visibility of where they came from in many cases. And this was a wonderful kind of marriage of, of where they lived and respect for where they, who had cultivated them previously, and then a gentle kind of re, 
introducing them to us as characters we already know in our gardens. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, I think I think another thread to add to that is that I think by doing that, because I'm also really interested in the plants that are around me here. So when I'm in the UK, I'm really interested in the wild plants here. I also feel their threat and loss really keenly when I'm traveling and when I'm here, when I'm in the UK, you know, I'm quite concerned about diversity. I'm fairly informed about hedgerows, what's happening around us. That's a childhood memory that comes to me that my mum would always say when we were riding or walking, you know, look at the cowslips, look at this, look at the old man's beard. We look at the primroses and we decorate cakes with them and stuff, you know, just little kid things. And now we're losing those plants. And I think by highlighting to the reader, trying to make the connection really, and saying the peony that's just like a cottage favorite peony, that is a wild flower that grows in Italy. It's the same plant. And it just maybe inspiring people that they can go and go to these places and not just look at the art and the buildings, but think it's really easy to drive two hours up the road and look at the plants, but also to just appreciate wherever they are in the world, the plants that are around them for their beauty, I think. Right. And making those connections, and I, I, uh, I watched the talk you gave for the Jerusalem Botanical Garden, and I loved how you focused, and you do this in your column as well, you know, and you don't do it in a way that hits anybody over the head, but you do it in a way that makes it a normal element of what we know about plants. Uh, This plant grows here and it is pollinated by these bees. It is, you know, it sets seed or it propagates in these two different ways um, in order, you know, as a strategy for survival. And so, uh, you know, you are you are kind of leveling up the knowledge that we have about these plants, which reintegrates us with this connection to place and and the whole ecosystem that these plants live in and are supported by. And I, I appreciate that because I think too often in the last 50, 75 years, uh, we have isolated these plants outside of that information and in that divorcing of one thing from the other, you impoverish all of it. I completely agree. A few people, when they give me feedback, it's nice to have positive feedback from people about your writing, but I think they like the amount of information I try to get in there because I don't like everything to be information light. It's that you want to make it interesting, you want to make it lyrical, but you want to tell the story. And I want to talk about the habitats actually, when I talk about these plants. And that really helps you in your, I mean, that's the best chatty thing, isn't it? The right plant, the right place. Yeah. It all comes together. It's like your growing would be so much better, whether it's vegetables or flowers or trees. You know, recently I was thinking about um, trees that prefer acid soil. And I had a great online conversation with, is that really true? You know, questioning things and thinking about the habitats or how is it just actually the hummus in the soil? You're always questioning things. And I think when you're traveling and looking at plants and writing about them, you question stuff. So you learn. Yeah. Yeah. And you notice different things. And I, and, and I think that questioning is a really important um, skill to build into uh, home, home gardener, all gardeners. I think it's a good skill for us. When you 
think about those two and a half years of columns um, entitled The Outsider. Are there trips that expanded you particularly? I mean, I think you, you, you said you indicated that the one to Israel that gained two columns was perhaps one of those. Um, are there anecdotes you would like to share about how these journeys and meetings with these plants have have grown you as a gardener in, in your work and your vision? Well, I think the thing that surprised me the most, actually, was that I decided fairly late on in doing them because I had loads more destinations, but you've got to kind of pick the right destination for the plate, you know. And right. I then I decided to start putting a few in about the UK. And I would love, by the way, to travel a lot more to the US. I have a big longing, you know, to spend some time in the US, but it was really finding things to write about in the plants in the UK that surprised me because I'd spent so much time in the Med, I've been to Japan, I spent quite a lot of time in Asia, and it was suddenly thinking, like, uh, I took a trip to Teesdale. Well, I'm not right. north of the UK, okay? So it's not far, but it's completely different. And I took Eliza, and that was really interesting. I learned so much from that, you know, and that has informed my gardening. Now I'm doing it, I mean, really, honestly, in, inspired by that trip, now with uh, Polly here, we're doing a whole riverside planting. I'm using the trolleys. We're doing a big riverside thing. You know, I'm more interested in alpines. So it was those surprising little trips that um, have to keep turning me around, actually. And I'd like to do more of those as well. So on the Teesdale trip, uh, describe for listeners uh, what, what that is is where you were its elevation and and what were some of those surprises that expanded you specifically? Uh, well Teesdale is a small national park I guess in the north of England it's like a big limestone pavement so you just take the single road and it goes up and up and up and suddenly it's really freezing cold it's very exposed and there's been some documentation about what plants you might find. So I had a good idea of where to go walking because I love walking. That's very restorative, you know, healing kind of process. So it's big hiking, but you arrive and it looks like there's absolutely nothing but dead grass and there's no trees. <laughs> it's not very welcoming. And it was quite early in the year. And then you get your eye in. And the reason I went there was really because there's the spring gentian and that is very rare in England. I've seen it growing in Ireland. There's another sea level um, limestone pavement in a place called the Burren on the um, west coast of Ireland that's really beautiful and they grow there. But this population in England is only in Teesdale. And I went for the gentians. And there was, I have to tell you this one wonderful story about this place. So I'm with my daughter and she's really fed up, okay, because it's freezing. We had a long <laughs> hike and she thinks there's nothing to see because I'm on my hands and knees with a hand lens looking at some primula. And this old lady, so we're in the middle of nowhere, and this really old lady was wandering across this incredibly desolate landscape. And I was thinking, how did she even get here? And she definitely needed <laughs> sticks. And, and I got talking to her and... She was really into her botany and her natural history. And she went, oh, you're here for the Teesdale Five. And it, she was like, this is my pilgrimage. She was fairly local, but she must have, I don't know how she got out there. It's like maybe someone dropped her off. And every year she came for her own personal pilgrimage, this really quite elderly, fair lady, to walk through this landscape and look for her Teesdale Five. 
And she was incredibly inspiring. I bet. I bet. Okay, so tell us the Teasdale Five. Oh, my gosh. I'd have to look them up because it's Primula, uh, Bird's Eye Primula. It's mm-hmm. two little different violas. Oh, yeah. gosh, what are they? One is... Like, the gentian. Oh, yes, of course. The spring gentian. And then the other is like, a, I think it's a little more grass that's very difficult. It's something like the blue more grass. I just love this story and I love her. And, and in my mind now, she was sent to you by the universe, right? And and to your daughter by the universe, uh, sort of Baba Yaga of, of, <laughs> of plant botany and pilgrimages. And that act of getting our eyes on, it just has so much power and empowerment in, in our lives if we like, just get out enough to allow it to happen, whether it's in our backyards mm. or, or, or in, you know, a faraway exotic travel. And that impression of like, there's nothing here. Like, this is just, there's nothing. And then all of a sudden you see that one gentian mm. or that one primula and all of a sudden they're everywhere. Yeah. And it's just a tiny little shift of visibility in our own ability to see. You know, it, it's just like that mindset shift of, is there nothing or is there everything? And um, it's just one of the great gifts of the plant world. I think. One of the things I really connect with plants, actually, is because they slow me down. Because I am someone who's quite high energy, quite kind of motivated, quite busy, and I go quite fast. And the thing I really like about plants and the actual process of gardening is that it, even though at times it can be quite overwhelming and very busy and you feel this energy of the spring, it also slows you down. So when I'm looking at plants, I'm normally walking because that's also very meditative. And then you're doing your research. So you're kind of slowing down to do that. And I just find connecting with the natural world really, really slows me down. And that feels good, I guess. Yeah. So I think you've already sort of answered this part of the question, Hannah. But, you know, if you were to articulate any other joys for you, in, in this work and the way you are integrating these different interests and um, endeavors, what, what would those joys be? I think, I think the joy is feeling, I mean, in this small space that I work in, I feel like we're improving what's here, which is really, we're improving biodiversity. We're doing restoration products projects with habitats. So in my small space, I'm doing that. And I hope, I mean, the thing I want to push for in my writing is really getting to people to engage more with the plants that are around where, where they live, however they do that. It's like just like the lichen. I wrote about lichen and I loved writing about that. And just seeing that, I'm not a lichenologist. I did, you know, I had to study and research it, but I've always loved lichen. I've always noticed them. And just noticing the small things and encouraging people to do that, I think. Is there anything you would like to add in light of this last tricky year, in light of, you know, some of the social justice resets and the environmental crises we have, you know, we are all trying to meet uh, the best that we can uh, about the importance of this kind of work, Hannah? I think... The plea I would make 
well, that could get quite political, <laughs> which is difficult. But the plea I would make is that for a long time, I've been involved in different ways, sporadically, just because of the time I have. But when I was at Kew, I went and helped in parks and judged the uh, open spaces, the public spaces. And I really just want the public spaces that everyone has access to, to receive more funding, to be given more importance. Those in the UK, those budgets are slashed and cut and those places are so important to people. And it's just having open access and in the countryside. And they're trying possibly to improve the access in the countryside, which I think is a really big thing in the States as well from my travels there. A lot of the land is private, isn't it? And you, that can be very hard to access. And I think that's deeply wrong, actually. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you, especially after reading your column for so long and um, learning from it every time. Uh, well, Jennifer, thank you so much for having me. It's been a complete pleasure. Hannah Gardner is a gardener, writer, mother, a garden designer, and plantswoman with a passion for traveling the world to learn about and meet plants in their places. Her longtime column in Gardens Illustrated entitled The Outsider is a trove of adventurous armchair plant and garden travel for readers to immerse themselves in. She also leads botanical garden trips, including one to Japan in 2022. The botanical lessons she learns globally not only deepen her knowledge of plants, but inform her organic horticultural work right at home, and give inspiration to all of us for better botanical holiday-making ourselves. These lovely, informative, and inspiring columns are astoundingly illustrated by Alice Petullo. You can follow Hannah's design, writing, and botanical travels at newbritishlandscapes.co.uk. Listen in next week when we have the first of a two-part series on high-altitude gardening in Colorado. Isa Cato is an artist, mother, activist, and avid gardener, making her artistic garden life with her family at elevation just outside of Aspen. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of learning and growing. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week... Enjoy the cultivation of your place, even while you travel. I'm Jennifer Jewell.